you are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Donish Geary. Today's episode, we will focus on the question of why the richest nation on earth with the most expensive healthcare system in the world became paralyzed by a pandemic and why our healthcare system is incapable of addressing the health needs of our nation. Why is it that the system on which we spend six times more than our defense budget, $3.5 trillion versus uh, $600 billion, cannot defend our health against the virus and made us the country with the highest mortality rate in the world? To explore these points, I'd like to have a question and answer with our own producer, Zal, who was diagnosed with COVID-19 about a month and a half ago and now has thankfully recovered. Welcome back, Zal. Uh, How are you feeling? Feeling good. Feeling great. Uh, Well, Zal, I appreciate you uh, allowing us to share your story with our uh, audience, Uh, kind of go through the timetable of this. So about a month and a half ago, how did you suspect that you may have had COVID-19? What happened? Um, Well, I honestly woke up one day and couldn't smell like normal. Um, Specific smells were just gone and it wasn't much of stuffy nose. It was just I could, the air was still passing through, but couldn't smell. So um, at that time, I think maybe the second day or third day of me having the symptoms, uh, I still couldn't smell. I called into my primary care physician and um, just off listing um, my symptoms of the not being able to smell, uh, they asked me, I think, do I have any other symptoms, whether I had a fever or not? And by um, telling her no, uh, she had suggested that I not go and get tested. Well, wow. So so if I clarify, so you had symptoms, you, uh, by your own, you were suspecting or you were worried whether uh, you had COVID, you reached out to your primary care physician and she asked you a few questions and said, no, don't worry about it. You know, you don't have COVID and uh, therefore you don't need testing. Right. So how did you find out that you did have COVID-19? So I have, uh, I have a girlfriend whose father has, is on immune um, suppressors. And so she, you know, after still being not able to smell for, I think, the maybe halfway through the third or fourth day, um, she was insistent. And so and I myself, after um, mentioning my symptoms to a couple, couple friends, they had uh, said that they knew people who starting symptoms were also not being able to smell. Um, so I went and uh, reached out to a family friend, a physician, um, a friend of the family physician, and um, got a uh, COVID test and went and got tested, I think, later that week um, and came back and got tested positive. Oh, wow. So you did the testing for the virus and it came back positive through really your personal connection through a family friend uh, who supposedly wrote the order and you went and got the testing done. Right, exactly. And then I uh, trust you went to quarantine, especially when your girlfriend's father uh, is uh, taking immunosuppression medications. And then so you followed the quarantine uh, guidelines that are published by CDC or something uh, for 14 days. And then um, so 
Did you ever develop any fever or any other symptoms that kind of you've read about the COVID-19? Uh, no, a little bit of a um, little bit of intestinal. I mean, maybe a little bit of constipation or feelings of, you know, something. But besides the smell, that was it. I mean, um, for the entire course, I think I I re reached out again um, a second and third time to my uh, family friend to get tested again. And after I believe first. Uh, two weeks, I tested positive again, and then after another, I think, week and a half or two weeks, tested positive again. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, during this time, did you have any medical questions and so forth, or have any issues that needed you to reach out again to a medical provider? Did you reach out to that family uh, uh, friend? Yes. I mean, I did reach out to the family friend, mm -hmm. pretty much just uh, questions of when mm -hmm. I should get tested. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, besides that, I mean, I didn't have any other symptoms beside my nose, so. And then at the end, how did you felt comfortable for both you and your girlfriend that, you know, you're kind of, you have recovered? Uh, did you just follow the calendar or what else did you do? So I actually, my um, family friend physician uh, scheduled um, me to go and get antibody tested. And after getting back the results and seeing that I'd had a number of antibodies growing at least that made my uh, girlfriend her father feel comfortable enough that um, I, I didn't even go get tested for a fourth time to be cleared it was just two weeks after my last positive I test see. so you did the testing that I think now is being called as uh, assured testing meaning you did the antigen testing and then you quarantine yourself and then you went at the end um, did an antibody testing showing that you're developing the antibodies, so you are immune. And as you know, we've discussed this in the past, uh, the concept of the herd immunity is when enough people have been immune, they have antibodies, then that portion of the population cannot circulate uh, the virus and therefore prote protect the remaining of the population. So through this, uh, family friend, uh, you kind of uh, got your own system set up uh, and got tested and protected your girlfriend and her family and the rest of them. Did she ever get uh, tested positive? Did she ever become affected by the uh, COVID-19? No. So she, um, her father was tested negative. Uh, her brother, who I was um, in contact with before I knew that I actually had the virus all tested. Awesome. Negative. So you did a very good job. You yeah. <laughs> uh, protected yourself and your, uh, your girlfriend and her family. So I'm glad we had this conversation because this summarizes or highlights the points that I'd like to present as the lessons that we have learned from COVID-19. But let me get a pause here to go back really to the turn of the past century and examine how these components of uh, health departments were born and how we have arrived to this point where we are faced with a pandemic, with a medical crisis. Uh, but it seems that the part of our system, which is the hospital system, was not able to help us during this process in terms of managing our health. Before the turn of previous century, when yellow fever, tuberculosis, and other plagues ravaged the country's largest cities in regular intervals, scientists began identifying microbes and later viruses 
as the cause of infectious diseases. As a result, the recognition of the need for a, a systematic and institutional level protection of our water, air, food, and other publicly used resources led to the creation of public health departments, which were put in charge of planning and maintenance of clean water, food sources, and air. And later, when the vaccines became available, vaccination and other health-related issues. Some of the nation's oldest public health departments in Boston, New York, and Baltimore were built on that premise. And of course, they later expanded throughout the whole country. These departments uh, became later a part of the local and federal government structure and are funded through tax revenues. Uh, we have about 3,141 counties in the U.S., and each county has its own Department of Public Health. By pushing the infectious diseases outbreaks to the margins in combination with discoveries of antibiotics and vaccinations that helped our society lower mortalities from infectious diseases uh, that, that at that point were the first cause of the death in U.S. to simple infectious diseases that are treatable uh, conditions, the situation turned into the, what the scientists refer to as the epidemiological transition, a remarkable leveling off of preventable death among children uh, who were affected largely and working adults happened during the second half of the 20th century. These efforts were followed by national campaigns that brought the scourges of nicotine addiction and sexually transmitted infections under control uh, during the remaining years of 20th century that collectively led to a significant rise in life expectancy in the United States uh, from less than 50 years to nearly 80 years. The departments of public health, uh, therefore, funded through the general taxes, as I mentioned earlier, and their budget averages about $100 per person per year, it's called per capita, and uh, is uh, operated by over 3,100 counties uh, in the U.S. Hmm. That's interesting. So what you were saying is basically when the causes of uh, common diseases, such as infectious diseases, were recognized, like COVID-19, um, management of controlling them was assigned to the public health departments. Um, so what, I guess, what is the distinction between um, an individual disease like cancer or something that, you know, is not to a public health uh, or a public, um, a, a danger to the public? Uh, what are the differences between those? Oh, very good questions. All. Um, again, during the same period of discoveries during the 20th century, as we were identifying the causes and the sources of infectious diseases as the number one cause of death uh, in the turn of the past century. At the other end uh, of spectrum of our health needs uh, and with the discoveries of uh, x-rays, anesthesia, medications, and so forth, a very modern and expensive healthcare system that we call it today was born and has grown and as we've discussed in the previous episodes of this podcast, 
It delivers its services through 5,000 hospitals across the U.S., and we spend uh, $10,000 per person per year, called per capita, uh, to sustain that system. So a comparison on one end of the spectrum is the public health, uh, that because of the discoveries of the turn of the past century uh, is focused on keeping our sources of water and air and other causes of infectious disease under control, and we spend $100 per capita. At the other end of the spectrum, as you said, if someone, uh, God forbid, and comes down with cancer or heart attack or any other diseases, uh, they go to basically one of these 5,000 hospitals across the U.S., uh, and they get treated. And for this part of it that we call healthcare, uh, about $10,000 per capita, and as you see, it is not really healthcare, it is really a sick care because we go there when we are sick. This brings up a, one of the lessons that we have learned during this pandemic, that although the public health departments have done a very good job of keeping our waters and food sources clean, and they're in charge of the vaccinations and so forth, they are not, and they were not equipped or capable of handling a pandemic health crisis. Because of the magnitude of this pandemic, because of the a smaller funding level for public health and many other issues, uh, this system was not equipped uh, to handle this uh, medical crisis or health crisis. At the same time, as your experience showed, uh, the, at the other end of this spectrum, this very expensive and modern healthcare system, or again, I call it a sick care system, was equally incapable of keeping us healthy, or when it came to cases like you, they weren't even helpful to allow you to go and get your testing done. So your primary care physician said, no, you're not uh, meeting the criteria and you shouldn't be tested, whereas you were positive. Let me explain what I mean. As you know, I live in Northeast Ohio, where there are four major hospital systems with a total revenue of $14 billion. Here I have an email from the CEO of the largest of these healthcare systems. Zal, could you read this uh, email out loud for me? Yeah, for sure. Here we have a note from our CEO and president. We've been receiving some questions about the email sent earlier this week, which stated we test patients who come to our emergency departments for the coronavirus. Here are some clarifications you should know. Testing is indeed a finite resource. To best serve our patients, we are prioritizing COVID testing for patients who have symptoms of COVID-19, have certain high-risk conditions, including those who are immune-compromised, transplant patients, or those from gr group living facilities, are admitted to the hospital, and require emergency surgical procedures. To make the best use of limited testing resources, we are not providing COVID testing for patients who do not have symptoms, patients who have been exposed to someone with COVID-19 and do not have symptoms, return-to-work testing, back-to-school testing. This means not all patients who come to our emergency departments will be tested. We are sorry for any confusion this may have caused. 
if you wish to get tested and don't have any symptoms, here is where you can find additional testing locations. We appreciate your understanding during this rapidly evolving time. End of email. Uh, thanks, all. As uh, the CEO mentions, the hospital control system is not equipped or interested in helping us with uh, COVID-19 if we are not sick from COVID. The reality is this happened to almost 80% or more than 80% of people who were exposed to COVID-19 with or without symptoms, people like you, Zal. So the above email highlights a few lessons we have learned from this six month or so dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Number one, the offerings by the public health and sick care systems have not been adequately responsive to the needs of our population. The public health was underfunded and overwhelmed and therefore could not deal with the implementation of issues such as expanded testing or respond to those of us who were not symptomatic but wanted to know if we had been exposed. There were plenty of people who wanted to know whether it is safe for them to go back and visit their elderly parents or go back to school and so forth. The hospital control system of delivery of care, or the sick care system, as I call them, is interested really in and capable of dealing with us when we are sick. When we are sick, then, then we need to be admitted to the hospital. And therefore, one can summarize the message of the CEO that if you are sick with COVID-19, we will do the testing for you and we'll take care of you. And if you're not sick and have other health needs, please go somewhere else. So these learned lessons is really the point of today's podcast. And I like to summarize this. The events of the late 19th century emphasized the need for creation of public health organizations uh, and its operations and funding went to the local governments uh, through the Department of Public Health with the funding of $100 per capita. At the other end of the spectrum was the discoveries of surgery and medication and so forth have led to rise of hospitals becoming the center of delivery of the healthcare. Uh, which is really the delivery of sick care system. And it costs and is covering is uh, done through our employers or the federal government, depending on how old you are, and the cost is $10,000 per capita. So during this period of development of the public health and the sick care system at the other end, we have added nearly 30 years to our life expectancies, and we are in need of a sector, department, or what have you that could help us to remain healthy because the majority of time and the majority of our population are not sick or we are not dealing with a public health crisis on a daily basis. And the question that I'd like to address in this podcast is, who should oversee this sector, this part of our health needs, and how should we pay for it? Do we need an organization that we may have to call it individual health departments? 
because again, on a daily basis, we are not dealing with a public health crisis like a pandemic. And most of the time, most of us are not sick uh, to need to go to the hospitals or become a point of interest for the hospitals. The question I have, or the questions I have, are whose job is it to take care of our health needs when we are not sick? And which financial resources should support those activities? Should the federal government pay for it through the taxes? Or our employers is responsible for paying for our gym membership so we do physical activities and we eat healthy foods and other activities that we know will keep us healthy. Or we should simply pay for it out of our own pocket. To shed light on this question, I have asked a friend and a medical student who just started his training at one of the prestigious universities in Northeast Ohio. Uh, my guest is Bernard. Uh, welcome to our show, Bernard. Thank you, Dr. Donishkari. It's good to be here. Congratulations on being accepted to the medical school. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm sure you're uh, delighted and you're flying on the clouds. Um, uh, Bernard, you've uh, had some conversations with me in the past, uh, but you're in the beginning of your career uh, where you're going to learn the clinical medicine uh, through medical school. And uh, first, I want to see whether you have some ideas about uh, what you're going to do after medical school uh, in terms of your future profession, in terms of your future work as a doctor. Well, I'm currently in my first year, so there are definitely a lot of decisions to be made. But right now, I'm leaning into maybe taking a residency in a surgical subspecialty. That hasn't really been decided yet. So I think in terms of my involvement with the healthcare system, I'll be handling the illnesses of people who have already gotten sick or seeking resolution for that illness in terms of a curative or maintenance treatment through surgery. So very much like me, you will be a, a very good doctor in the sick care system. Exactly. That, uh, very nice. Um, Bernard, you have heard this, and in the beginning of this podcast, we presented a dilemma uh, that we have or the missing point in our healthcare. Uh, that uh, I believe COVID-19 has brought it to our acute attention. And that is at one end of the spectrum are health needs that are devoted or are related to the public health, uh, providing us with the clean water, clean air, uh, preventing infectious diseases to the sources of the food, vaccination, and so forth. Uh, which we fund about $100 per capita. At the other end of the spectrum is our needs for good doctors like yourself in the future to take care of us when we are sick. Uh, and we are spending about 10000 per capita on that, almost twice as much as the rest of the world. Do you agree with me that the COVID-19 showed us the gap between these two ends of the spectrum? Majority of people, like our own producer Zal, who 
was infected with COVID-19, but he was not sick. And therefore, he couldn't even get the test because he wouldn't fit the, uh, some of the criteria the hospital system had, and he had to arrange through his friend uh, to get his test. Uh, but he remained at home. He kept himself quarantined and so forth. And as we know now about the data, so more than 80% of people who were involved with uh, COVID uh, were in that category. So during this discussion, we extrapolated this concept to the fact that over the past century, we have added about 30 years to our uh, life expectancy. And most of us hopefully won't get sick uh, to need the sick care system, but we definitely are in need of remaining healthy, uh, how to eat, how to exercise, and so forth, so we won't get the sick, uh, sickness. So uh, do you agree with this observation that there's a gap between the public health and the sick care system? Absolutely. And if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, uh, we really have two domains of health, public health and clinical medicine, and both are tailored to address certain issues. But with this issue of keeping people healthy, preventing them from becoming ill and entering into the sick care system, there's not really an existing institution or entity that really addresses the need to keep an entire population healthy. Um, so uh, the question is whether if this trend continues, uh, we learn more about how to improve our lifestyles, how to eat better, how to exercise, or I don't know what other things that we have to do to keep ourselves uh, healthy. The philosophical question of really who's in charge of our health, and I know so we have some uh, views on that. Would you uh, care to share that with me? Sure. Um, so if we were to talk about the entity that is in charge of our health after becoming ill, that would probably be within the domain of clinical medicine. And in terms of health with regards to clean water uh, and education um, about preventing infectious diseases, that could lie within the domain of public health. But in terms of living a healthy li lifestyle and having adequate exercise habits, I'm not sure that there exists an institution that actually takes up the reins on that role. Um, if I were to say who ultimately is in charge of a person keeping themselves healthy, I think to maintain the tenets of personal freedom and personal responsibility that this country was founded on, I think the ultimate responsibility lies on an individual themselves to keep themselves healthy. However, that being said, I'm not sure that there exists adequate institutions to educate people on the steps that they can take to keep themselves healthy and to help them navigate the maze of really a large amount of factors that, that could yield illness. As you know, uh, over the past one or two decades, uh, the question has been on the desk of scientists and uh, people who are involved in the healthcare and uh, as a result, the word of population health has been born. Population health in general refers to the scientific basis for methodologies, tools, uh, data analytics, and so forth that would help a population to remain healthy or 
uh, diagnose the trends that makes a population unhealthy. And I, without going to, too much into the weeds, uh, the whole concept of um, cessation of the smoking, you know, looking at the amount of calories in the food in the restaurants we, uh, we consume, and so forth, those fall into the, uh, to the domain of the population health. Definitely, and I think what's important about that population health approach is it takes some expertise on public health, a lot of expertise from clinical medicine, but it's not really within the traditional domain of either field. It's as if, as you describe, in the continuum of keeping people healthy and handling their illness when it does happen, there exists a large gap that needs to be filled and really, we don't have the tools, the institutions that adequately fill that gap. So now going back to funding part, uh, everything you want to do in life will take resources and funding. Uh, the question is, and I'm not sure if we need to find answer in this podcast, but at least to address the question of um, among the, our resources that we are spending on our livelihood, um, seems that the part that is going to uh, the sick care uh, through our insurance and our premiums and out of pocket, it consumes a huge amount, about roughly about 20% of our GDP. Uh, we've discussed in this podcast before, for a family of four, the annual spend of the total uh, healthcare spend is about 28,000 per year um, from the contribution of the employer, employee, and so forth. That compares to 17,000 for housing, uh, which is a more primary need of a human being, or 9,000 for transportation. So um, the question of where the potential funding for this gap should come from, do you have any ideas now you're in the thick of the medical school and I'm sure you're, you know, you go around the medical center and you look around and so forth. Uh, share with me some of your thoughts. Absolutely. And honestly, this podcast is pretty timely because uh, over at Case, where I go to medical school, um, <clears throat> uh, we just finished our first block, which actually relates to healthcare systems and population health. Um, and so really the benefit for me going to the best medical school in the world is I'm partially equipped with the right information to handle this question. So I think two points are really important with regards to answering this question. One is how do most people obtain their health care? And really, most people in our nation obtain their health care uh, through an employer. So I believe that's called employer-based health insurance, private health insurance. Um, the second point that ne that's necessary to answer this question is a really reproducible and well-documented phenomenon, which is that in the ecology of healthcare spending, around 50% of all healthcare dollars is waste. So you've cited a figure of 10,000 on average per capita healthcare spending for our nation. And I believe you compared that to spending in some European nations where they spend three to 5,000 per capita. And this kind of illustrates a source of waste, uh, perhaps a source of 
if we were to eliminate that waste, a way to fund other initiatives to handle people's health. I see. So what you're saying is in order for us to fund the, this concept of the population health is really not to go and uh, steal money from other parts of our lives, the education and food and so forth, is really to improve our existing healthcare slash secure system to eliminate the 50% of the waste and really tunnel or funnel those funds toward uh, improving the health of an individual or in the individual uh, or the population. Definitely. And I think it's pertinent that we address that most people get their health care through their employer because that really gives us a point where we can exact those savings, where we can uh, create savings and at the level of the employer, perhaps reinvest those funds that are saved into keeping more people healthy. Very good. I think we have addressed this issue enough without confusing our audience. I would uh, definitely like to come back and review this uh, concept of individual health department or whatever we uh, call them to shed light on this need and this learned lesson that COVID really br brought to our attention. Uh, that uh, how we can reconstruct or how our system needs to be reorganized or what is the missing part in our existing system that would allow us to really have it all, uh, to have a very good uh, public health system, to have a very good sick care system, takes care of us when we get sick, and also have resources for us to allow us to remain healthy uh, when we need it. I want to thank you, Bernard, for uh, your participation in this podcast and wish you good luck in the medical school and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast again. Thank you for having me, Dr. Donishkari. Excellent. Uh, I'm uh, hopeful that you have enjoyed this conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Donishkari. Until the next episode, stay well and be safe. You've been listening to Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Bowtie Medical. Visit us on the web at www.wcwha.com, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and send all your questions and comments to info at wcwha.com. Again, that's info at wcwha.com.